the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Each man's life touches so many other lives. When he isn't around, he leaves an awful hole, doesn't he? Welcome to What a Life with Paul Batura. Paul is a best-selling author, writer, Fox News contributor, and vice president of communications at Focus on the Family. This is a show about the extraordinary value of every life. It's a show about movers, shakers, and culture shapers. And now, here's your host, Paul Batura. Well, thanks for that introduction, Dr. Bill, and welcome to the program. It's good to have you with us, and a special thanks to the Salem Network for hosting our show. Now, I'll tell you, I was a little overwhelmed preparing for this week's program, and I'll tell you why. My guest today is one of my doctors. Now, I know that makes it sound like I have a lot of doctors. I don't. But about six months ago, I developed what I thought was just a cut on my back. No big deal, but it wouldn't heal, so I did what most people do. I went online, I put on my internet MD hat, and uh, I thought, well, probably need to go see my family doctor after seeing what I saw online, and then he referred me to my guest today, and that's Dr. Vin Chung. Now, Dr. Vin Chung is a Harvard-trained and board-certified dermatologist and co-founder of Vanguard Skin Specialists, which is based in Southern Colorado. He's won all kinds of awards, top doctor year after year, but this isn't really going to be a conversation about skin care or skin cancer, though we might chat a little bit about that. Uh, This is way more. It's a remarkable story of God's sovereignty and grace, man's kindness, and an incredible family who beat the odds and who continues to give back on so many levels every day. Now, Dr. Chung is married to Liesl, and they have four children. Uh, Dr. Chung, it is great to have you with us today. Thanks, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Well, let's level set a little bit here. Um, I want to talk about your book. Your book is entitled, Where the Wind Leads, A Refugee Family's Miraculous Story of Loss, Rescue, and Redemption. A remarkable memoir that after listening to the show, you're going to want to go get a copy of this. But let me just start here. Um, I've been to a lot of doctor's offices. Um, probably not as many as some, but I've been to a lot. When I stepped into yours, you know, it's bright, it's airy, it's cheery, friendly, and there's a spirit there that I've never felt in any other office. What am I feeling there when I walk into your clinic? Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm so glad that you noticed it. What you're feeling is just um, a reflection of our gratitude and our uh, concern for our patients. And uh, going to the doctor is scary enough. No one chooses to go to the doctor. And so to the best that we can, we try to make it a pleasant experience. And you started that in what year? We opened the practice in 2009. So I have to say that my wife, Lisa, started the practice uh, because when I finally finished my training, I couldn't find a job. And uh, so she helped me out by giving me one. So she, she and I opened Vanguard Skin Specialist in 2009. We opened it up with uh, just a few staff members and one office that we subleased from another provider. 
And today we work out of eight offices with about 125 staff members. Wow. I'll tell you, I was very moved by the story you tell of starting that. You had hoped to uh, join up with another clinic early on. You had, I guess, applied or had some conversations about joining their practice. And then when you were told they were going in a different direction, you were kind of downcast about that. And your wife stepped in, and what did she tell you? She said, well, what do you think about me starting uh, helping you start this practice? And I thought, okay, sounds good. And I think that it's just a lesson for me. And, and I think that, um, you know, whenever I have goals for myself over and over again, I'm always reminded that I dream, but my dream is too small. And up to that point, you see, in medicine, is it's very grueling. Uh, I spent literally 15 years after high school for all my training in order to do what I do. And during those 15 years, one step after another has been led by my individual performance, what I am individually capable of accomplishing and doing. And so not being able to, and this is the first time I'd ever failed at anything, uh, not getting a job, mm. because up to that point I was able to get into whatever school, residency, fellowship that, that I yeah. applied for. And uh, so it, it was like a kick in the gut, but I think it's the best thing that ever happened to me. Because over time I learned that uh, my impact on this planet is not based upon my individual performance, but it's more about uh, what we can all do together and, and what kind of organization that we can build, uh, what kind of culture we could build, and, and who we bring along on this incredible journey of just making a, a, a positive impact on our patients, our community, and our world. And what you described earlier, the, the experience of stepping into a medical practice, that is not a typical medical practice. And I think that if I had found a job, I would probably be busy working in a, in a medical practice with a typical kind of yeah. you know, depressing atmosphere. But because we're, we started from scratch, we're able to design it and create it and just to let it flourish into something that we're very proud of and that we enjoy uh, being a part of. Yeah, this is not an advertisement, but if you are needing a dermatologist, Vanguard skin specialist, you cannot do better than that uh, in this area. Um, before we go to your story, um, I mean, part of your story is how you became a doctor, and uh, you kind of stumbled upon a lecture on dermatology when you were at Harvard. How, how does that happen? <laughs> I did. Well, I, I, I'm, first of all, I'm so grateful that I enjoy medicine because when I was growing up, my father told me, become a doctor, and that's all I knew. And just somehow it was just put in my mind that I was going to go into pre-med and, and become a doctor, but I had no idea what it meant to be a doctor. I just knew yeah, I had to study hard and, and make A's. And uh, my father and my mother, they both uh, were refugees, and so neither of them went to college. Nobody in my family had ever uh, gone into medicine. Uh, and so it was just stepping into the unknown. And uh, I was fortunate enough to, to get into medical school, and I actually found um, the dermatology lecture pretty boring one day during my third year of medical school. So I just, during my second year of medical school, and so I was just skipping that class, and then I stumbled into the office of a, a Mo surgeon. So he's a, he's a skin cancer surgeon who, um, who showed me what he did, and I was awestruck. And it was that day on that I decided that that's what I want to do. Yeah, so Mo's surgery, I know, I know a little bit about this because I read up on it, and you didn't have to do that for me, but what is that? So Mohs surgery is named after Dr. Frederick Mohs. It's just a very precise and meticulous way to remove skin cancer 
that allows us to preserve as much of our healthy tissue as possible. And so uh, it also provides us with a high secure rate. And so you get the best outcome in terms of high secure rate as well as the cosmetic result from the surgery. Got it. Okay. All right. Well, let's go back because <laughs> um, you weren't born in America. Uh, you were born in Vietnam. Uh, and your story, I mean, you're of Chinese ancestry, which plays into your family's decision to emigrate and to escape. Um, but you were, when you were uh, in your mom's womb was when the fall of Saigon happened. And, uh, you know, those are images that Americans of a certain age have in their mind. You obviously don't remember that, but you remember the aftermath a little bit. Uh, tell us the story of your family. Um, bring us back to that. You know, how, did, how did your family get to that point? Sure. Uh, yeah, so my story started uh, back in the Vietnam War. Uh, April of 1975 was when the U.S. military withdrew its troops, and that was when uh, people panicked. Uh, stormed the U.S. Embassy, uh, trying to leave the country. It's the same thing that happened in Afghanistan a couple of years ago. And so you look at some of the images, they are eerily similar. And uh, right when all of that chaos was happening, my mother was pregnant with me. And so I was born eight months later. And my family's ethnic Chinese. We're from South Vietnam. We were also from a wealthy family. And so after the communists took over, uh, we were persecuted. Uh, our business was taken away. We were kicked out of our own homes. We didn't have any legal rights, and we were forced to uh, just survive in the jungle. We, we were living in this uh, little plot of land where we had to uh, try to survive. And uh, my parents had eight children at this time. And so... All under the age of 12, right? Yes, all under the age of 12, yes. And I, and I was so I was born uh, in 76, and then my parent, my mother had two more children, so my, my twin younger brothers, and they knew that there, that was no future to raise their children, and so they took the chance to, uh, to, to, you know, to have to have a different life for their children, and so we left as refugees in 1979. Yeah. Okay. I'm talking with Dr. Vin Chung. He's the author of an incredible book, "Where the Wind Leads: uh, A Refugee Family's Miraculous Story of Loss." Uh, rescue and redemption. And I'm Paul Batura. This is What a Life Lessons from Legends. Um, Dr. Chung, you, you talk about uh, the culture in, uh, in Vietnam. Uh, the Viet Cong took over. In, in the book, you talk about how they sort of literally emerged from the woodwork uh, because that was the nature of they were living before the fall of Saigon. They were living amongst you and you didn't even know it. What do your siblings remember about that? I mean, to have lived through that is frightening, I can imagine. Yeah, my, my siblings, so I think that the, the story that really stands out in my mind when I listened to my sister was that after the change in regime, all of the money that we had became worthless. All of the currency changed overnight. And, and we also had to hide some of the money that we had uh, and so my sister would remember, uh, and my father would talk about it too, how they would actually burn the money that we had because you don't want to show how much wealth that you have mm. because the more wealth that you have, the greater you'll be punished. And so that's an image that just comes to my mind uh, when I think about the world that, w that they went through, just turned upside down. And you know, as rough as we had it, being uh, kicked out of our house, living you know, trying to force to live in the jungle, in the, in, in the Mekong Delta, 
we actually had some acts of kindness from the people there, and it was because my father had been kind to some of the people there. Uh, when he had wealth, he was kind to some of the, the locals, uh, treated them well, and so uh, we were we benefited from that. Uh, and so in many ways, it's just a reminder about how our acts of kindness would, would mm. come back and bless us. It, it does work that way, not always, but that's yeah. encouraging to yeah. hear that. Your grandmother was one tough lady. She's uh, a tough lady, yes. And uh, this, this, she sat on diamonds, right? Jewelry. Did she was she able to preserve those? That's a great question. You know, I, I actually don't know where that is. Uh, that's a great question, and. Uh, so I'm not sure where it is, uh, but uh, it, during that time, you can't trust any banks to hold your money. Uh, there was just complete instability. So everything that you had, you converted to gold or diamond. And she would stash a, a, a coffee can full of diamonds. And uh, she would sit on it underneath her seat to, to protect it. It's a good good hiding place, obviously. It yes. seemed to work. <laughs> yeah. Yes, nobody would, would dare try to, uh, try to uh, look there. <laughs> So you, your family decides in 1979, they gather uh, other people together, decide it's time to make our break. Um, 280 people jam into a fishing boat, which just kind of blows my mind. Not a big boat by any stretch. Do you have any recollection of that? I don't have any recollections of leaving Vietnam. Uh, my siblings do. They're older than I am, so they remember as if it was yesterday. But during the journey, I do remember... Um, the taste of salt water. And, and here's mm. why I remember that, the smells of the salt water and the sounds. Because when, I, when we made it to the U.S., I grew up in Arkansas, which is over a 1,000 miles from the closest beach. And uh, we only went to lakes. But when I was in college, I visited uh, the, the ocean for the first time. And when I smelled the salt water, I thought, oh, my goodness, I've smelled this before. Wow. And the only time prior to that would have been when I, uh, when my family left Vietnam. Wow! Yeah, the, those senses are so powerful. How they yeah, can bring yeah. bring back memories. Yes, it, it's incredible. And 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 I remember talking to my father. It, it brings back sad memories as well. I remember taking my father once to Rhode Island, and we were just walking along uh, this uh, this uh, coastal town with beautiful buildings, beautiful houses, and. And I was enjoying it because I, I, I would hear the waves and enjoying the scenery. And my father would tell me, wow, the sounds of these waves just bring back such loneliness and fear and isolation mm. because those were his memories of yeah. the journey. So I was fortunate because I was only three and a half years old. So I didn't, I don't have much, I don't have many memories of, of what took place. And yeah. so in many ways, I, I, I've been tremendously blessed because I was so young. Yeah. So you were, you're so young, you are... I mean, as on the journey, you are uh, uh, accosted by pirates from Thailand. Yeah, I mean, this is like material for a movie. And uh, I think it needs to be made into a movie at some point. I know your <laughs> wife's story has been, but uh, you, that, uh, you get accosted by the pirates, then you get sent back out to sea. I mean, give us a little bit of a snapshot of what that journey was like. Sure. The journey was horrific. And... During the journey, you will see the worst of mankind. You will see the absolute worst of what humans could do to one another. As refugees, we are civilians. We left, we're families. 
mothers, grandmothers, grandfathers, children, infants. We sold everything we had, and we brought value. We've brought everything that we had of value that has been converted into jewelry, and we set out on, into a boat, uh, hoping to make it to a refugee camp. And the locals there understood that, and so for them, we were just a floating uh, bank. They knew that we were defenseless. We were not armed. We couldn't fight back, and uh, they could do whatever they want.、Uh, they rob, sometimes they kidnap, and they do horrific things to people. And there was no accountability because there were no records of what happened. And then after they rob and do, and do these horrible things, if they sink your ship, then then all of the evidence will be at the bottom of the sea. And so、uh, that's what it's like to be a refugee: is that you have no Dignity. You have no legal rights. You have、uh, no form of protection whatsoever.、Uh, and so, and so, I think having gone through that makes me、uh, more sensitive and aware of the needs of people in this community.、Mm. Uh, because it, it, we live in our society here, we, we forget about the idea of basic rights. Yeah, you, you talk about、uh, struggling to prevent compassion fatigue. That when we see so many people hurting,、um, my former boss at Focus on the Family, James Dobson, talked about what he said: the doctrine of limited tears. This was something that he kind of coined in his own way. That he said, God created us in a way that we can't carry the whole burdens of the world on our back, or we would be unable to function. That we have a limited capacity to be able to feel compassion. We can feel it every day, but you obviously have to function. I'm curious when you see the images coming out of the world today. I mean, this is different, and of course, different circumstances and all. But、uh, and there's a lot of political ramifications attached to it. But how do you respond to that? Being a former refugee and having a real heart for this, how do you how do you process all of that? That that's a great question, and it's something that I think we all must struggle with.、Uh, I think that. It is one thing to recognize that we have a limitation of what we can do, but it is another thing altogether to dismiss it or to deny it. And、uh, Stan Muniham, who was the president of World Vision, that was on that ship that picked up my family, he said something that I will always remember. He said that he recognized that he can't do everything for everyone, but he could do something for someone.、Mm. And I think that is what is expected of all of us. And I think that. That's expected of us, not only as a follower of Jesus, but that's expected of us if we want to remain human. Because compassion fatigue, taken to an extreme, would lead to、uh, a complete disregard for another human being. And when you reach that point, then you become, in many ways, less human. At least less human than the type of person that God has created us to be. Uh, God has created us to care for one another, to love one another, and so we just have to find out what is it that we can do,、uh, not to fix everything in the world. The, there will always be problems in this world, but we always need to be reminded that there is something that we can do. Yeah, that's such a great word. I mean, the idea that you can't do everything, but you can do something. You mentioned World Vision, one of the great ministries of this world, and、uh, you know, we, many of our listeners are familiar with them. Stan Mooneyham, Mooneyham is a is long gone now, and of course, a man from another era. They're still doing great work. I know you've you've been on the board.、Uh, 
um, obviously a, a natural connection. Looking at your book, um, the photographs that you have in that book about with your family, I'm curious, when did you first see those photos? Because you probably didn't know they existed for years. I, I did not know. I remember when I was a kid, there, so, so beyond the photos, there was actually a BBC documentary. So there's video footage of our rescue. So that's an incredible thing. What a gift to be able to have that. And I remember when I was a kid, there was just this, you know, VHS tape that we've, that's been copied a hundred times. So it was grainy and with all yeah. the lines gone through it. I remember watching that as a kid, but yeah, I, I never really thought much about it. Uh, it was just a part of my past, but I didn't understand that, that it was a part of who I am until I was uh, in medical school. So I would say probably um, early 2000s when I was in medical school. As I was finishing up medical school, I was applying for residency. And, and so when I started putting pieces of my story together, I thought, oh, that's interesting. Uh, well, this is an organization, World Vision. And by then, there's internet as well. So it made things a lot more accessible. So, so I reached out to World Vision around that time and said, hey, by the way, do you have any photos? And that's when they sent the photos. <clears throat> wow. So that was the first time. That, that was the first time anybody has seen it. Uh, well, anyone outside of World Vision. Yeah. So you're 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 literally st- stranded in a boat. Um, the um, World Vision ship comes upon you. I forget the name. What was the name of the ship? Sea Sweep. Sea Sweep comes upon you. It takes you all on board. And uh, I, I mean, I, that must have been an overwhelming moment. I don't know if you were. You probably don't have great recollection of that, but maybe you do. I actually do have a memory of that. So I remember, so I was three and a half years old. I remember a lot of commotion. I remember adults yelling, say, lie down, lie down, lie down. And of course, as a kid, when you're told to lie down, what do you do? You peep your head up, right? (laughs) (laughs) So I didn't know why they're telling us to lie down. And then later on, I realized, oh, they want everyone to lie down and look sick and desperate Hmm. so that we could, so that the ship would have compassion on us, see how pathetic we were and pick us up. And As I if looked, that was hard to do. I mean, exactly. you guys were stranded. <laughs> yeah, we had been starved and dehydrated for days. We were basically at the brink of death. But it's just funny to think, oh, wow, um, that was everyone's thought because we were that desperate. And, mm-hmm. uh, and you think about what we had, too, at that point as refugees, the only power that you have is to try to elicit compassion from strangers. Mm. That is the only power that you have. You have no power. Our boat was stranded. We had no working engine. We had no food. We had no water. And here's the other thing. Prior to the World Vision ship that came up uh, and met our boat, we were attacked by pirates. So when we first saw the ship that came up, we didn't know if it was just another pirate ship. Friend or foe, right? We had no idea. Yeah. And then all we can do is just to beg and to hope that people will have, show us compassion. Wow. And so fortunately, you know, they picked us up. And, and the intent of C-Sweep, Operation Sea Sweep at that time was not to go out and rescue refugees. It was only to, to provide aid and assistance. And so Sam Mooneyham and the captain had to make a very tough decision because they knew that if they picked up the refugees, there will be no ports that would allow them to, to dock. And so that was that was a moral dilemma that they had to do, but they made the right decision. They, they could not they could not look the other way, and and let us mm, die. They saved your life. I mean, if most of the people who left Vietnam with your group didn't make it, they did not. So we would never know the numbers. Right, people just fleeing. The estimate is one out of two would make it. 
one out of two. And the rest, who knows what happened. Yeah. I, one of the things, talking about your preparation for that trip that really struck me was your mom's decision to keep you all together. That uh, there was some talk about splitting it up and sending, keeping the younger kids. I mean, that probably saved your future too. Who knows what would have happened? It, it, yes. It, 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 um, unfortunately, in, in these situations, a lot of families are split up out of necessity. Uh, maybe they can only send two out of four people. Or who knows what happened in the chaos? People have to split up. But for my mother, she would, she refused to split up our, our immediate family. Yeah, I'm talking with Dr. Vin Chung. He is co-founder of Vanguard Skin Specialists in Southern Colorado. But he has a remarkable story that he chronicles in his book "Where the Wind Leads." Uh, when we come back, um, Dr. Chung has a lot to a lot of ground to cover. We've talked about kind of the, you know all the not all just a snapshot of what brought you to the brink of death and to your emigration to America. But I'd like to, of course, jump into um, what was it like to be a kid uh, arriving in Arkansas after having lived in Vietnam. And then, of course, your uh, incredible ascent, all your your medical school work, and then uh, obviously landing in Colorado Springs. So when we come back, uh, we're going to talk about that. My name is Paul Batura. You've been listening to What a Life, Lessons from Legends. What an honor to have Dr. Vin Chung on our program today. So thanks for listening, and we'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Paul Batura. This is What a Life, Lessons from Legends. I'm uh, in studio here today in southern Colorado talking with Dr. Vin Chung. Dr. Vin Chung is co-founder of Vanguard Skin Specialists. He's a dermatologist board-certified, award-winning surgeon. Uh, he's also the author of an incredible memoir, Where the, Where the Wind Leads, about his escape from Vietnam. And we've been talking about that in the first half, kind of what brought him to America. Um, well, you're you're on the boat. You're rescued by World Vision. Again, one of the great ministries. You're on the board, or you were on the board of World Vision. Correct. I was on the board for six years. I mean, what a that must have been a very fulfilling Oh, assignment. It, it absolutely was. It was such a privilege to be able to uh, to serve the, the, the poor and the vulnerable around the world. If someone wants to get engaged with World Vision, I mean, it is money well spent. Absolutely. You know, and so we have, there, there are numerous ways to engage with World Vision. You could try worldvision.org uh, to see. And I think that for a lot of people, you know, we sponsor children, we write checks, we see photos, and really, you don't know what happens. And I am living proof of what can happen mm. from the generosity of people. And yes, I owe my life to the generosity of so many people who helped me along the way. And, and, and the fact is that I owe my life to the generosity of so many people that I have never met. Uh, so mm. that, that to me is the most powerful thing. So whenever we, we give, we support, you may never meet the individual uh, that you benefit with the life that you save. But just know that it's real. Yeah, that's what a great word. I mean, no matter what charity is on your heart, if you're giving to World Vision or if you're giving to Compassion or, you know, you're obviously even maybe not more important, but equally important, your local church, dollars are given that you don't know necessarily. But, uh, you know, sometimes we're given a glimpse and your story is an opportunity to see how that money is well invested. Um, You talked about getting picked up by World Vision. You land in Singapore. Uh, I was struck by when you got your first, I don't know if it was the first meal they gave you, but 
something as simple as an apple really stuck struck uh, you as luxurious. Yeah, and you know it, it, it's funny how they're the random things that you remember, but I remember just the smell of, of apples in in Singapore, and we would never think twice about an apple here in the U.S. But in Vietnam, apples don't grow that well, and mm-hmm. so it's just a, another fruit that is that is treasured. And so I remember my siblings and I would talk about how we we smell the apples, and and I don't know if it was through. Uh, from a, a local grocery store or, or an apple orchard that we went through. Uh, but it's just something that would, would just stick with us even to this day. Yeah. Another act of generosity that jumped out at me that you chronicle is being in the San Francisco airport. And now in America, we kind of worry about people pickpocketing us, taking something from our pocket. Someone actually put something in your pocket. Yeah. I, I was a kid and um, we were there. So we were in the San Francisco airport group of uh, refugees, so these are my parents, they're eight kids, none of us spoke English, we clearly did not belong there, uh, but there was a stranger that came by and, and put something in my pocket. I didn't know what it was, but then when my father pulled it out, I found out it was a $100 bill. So it was just incredible mm-hmm. generosity from strangers. And, and if I remember that $100 bill was then, you were able to use that when you needed some groceries when you got relocated. Yes, and then eventually we got relocated to uh, Fort Smith, Arkansas. So, so, and uh, a um, a Lutheran church in this town in Fort Smith, Arkansas, greeted us at the airport. And again, we didn't speak English; they didn't speak Vietnamese, but uh, we knew that they were welcoming us. Mm. And it was also that first night too when they brought us to our our house in Fort Smith. I remember eating these chocolate chip cookies. So that's the first thing that I ate. And they the were US. too sweet. You thought they were, <laughs> you didn't like them yes, at first. Yes, th- they were too sweet. Today I could probably eat a whole stack of them and not think <laughs> twice. But back then it was just too sweet. And, and that's that the first food I remember eating in the U.S. is a big old chocolate chip cookie. And of course, too, as a little kid, a chocolate, the chocolate chip cookie that they showed us was just gigantic. And we just couldn't believe that people ate this. Wow. I, there's so many fun little colorful things like that in your book, you know, uh, looking at America through the eyes of someone who has never been here before. Um, you talk about the cookies. You even talk about not knowing, you know, you're hearing cities mentioned. Um, you know, you didn't know where Dallas was. You didn't know where San Francisco was. And then when you hear Arkansas, you were kind of, you had, maybe you had heard about that, you know, San Francisco, but Arkansas probably seemed like the end of the earth. That's right. We, we didn't know the difference between Fort Smith, Arkansas, or San Francisco, California. Uh, but in our minds, it didn't matter because it's America. Yeah. And that's all that mattered. You also say something funny in your book where you said that all Americans to you <laughs> looked alike. Yes, that's right. <laughs> they sure did at that point. <laughs> yeah. So you land in Arkansas. A church sponsors you. You get some housing, critical housing, 1,100-square-foot house, and you're overwhelmed by this. You know, people in now, I mean— 1,100-square-foot home today is considered tiny, but here your family, of is it 11 by then? Yeah, so it was 10, and then eventually we had uh, three more children, so okay. we became 13. Yes. So 1,100 square feet, it feels yeah. like a palace to you. It, it was gigantic, and, and it's actually great, too, because the four years prior to that, from 75 to 79, we were living in this little shack with no electricity or running water. Mm. So it was quite, a, quite an upgrade. And you talk about the generosity, not just financial generosity, but the warmth of spirit of people that you encountered. There was one man in particular, wasn't there, someone who made a big impression on you? Yeah, so we had, we had multiple heroes along along the way. And, uh, you know, they're, they're just numerous people from the pastor of the Lutheran Church. We had interpreters. We had 
volunteer that showed up and, and drove us, uh, helped us to register for school, uh, helped us to go to the grocery store. And, and today, too, I, I think of just fondness of um, uh, teachers that spend extra time with me uh, because uh, English was my third language, and I struggled. I remember going to school and not knowing how to speak English. I remember very clearly. Uh, and then I just remember teachers that spent extra time with me, Sunday school teachers, uh, my my neighbors and my friends' parents who drove me to football practice and, and different academic events because my father wasn't able to drive us. Uh, so there, there's just so many heroes along the way. Yeah, you um, you mentioned three languages. What are the other Vietnamese? Yeah, then... so, we spoke, so, so we speak Chinese uh, at home and, and Vietnamese. And then, so English is the third language. Ah, okay. When do you? What do you think? What language do you think in today? I actually don't know, but mostly English. Yeah, my my, my Chinese and Vietnamese. I don't use it regularly enough, uh, so it's mostly English. Okay, we're talking with Doctor uh, Vin Chung. He is the author of Where the Wind Leads, and he's co-founder of Vanguard Skin Specialists in Southern Colorado. Um, your faith is very important to you. It it has not only sustained you; it um, it, it certainly got you through a lot. When did that become real to you as a young young person? Oh, good question. You know, I I'm fortunate enough to where I grew up going to church because um, we landed uh, one of the local churches there started a Vietnamese ministry to minister to the Vietnamese refugees in the area, and so uh, we were introduced at a very young age. But prior to that, I would say that it's all because of my father. Back in Vietnam, we we didn't practice any religion. We believe a mixture of Confucianism, Buddhism, ancestral worship. And my father was, you know, if I had to describe, he was just a playboy who was mm-hmm. very wealthy and he did whatever he wanted. And it wasn't. It was during our journey from Vietnam to the U.S. where he was in a boat. We had no food. We had no water. His wife and his eight children were dying right before his eyes. And there was nothing he could do about it, and he was humbled. And so he was broken down, and it was at that point when he prayed to God, because he always believed in a creator. He prayed for rain, and rain came down. <laughs> uh, and, and I think that right there was a turning point, and after World Vision picked us up, he uh, heard of the gospel from Stan Mooneyham. And, and so when we came to this country, he was devout. He didn't know all the—he hasn't read through the Bible, he hasn't— doesn't know all the details of what it means to be a Christian, but he knew that he wanted he wanted a different life. And so, yeah. growing up, I, he we went to church. That was a that was a given. <laughs> it okay. didn't matter yeah. rain or shine or you know we 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 went to church. And so for me, I always knew that in the background. So I think it's always been a journey. I think I I was a a teenager when when I was baptized, but it's been a lifelong journey uh, that that continues to. Uh, to be active uh, today. Yeah, and such an advantage to grow up in that type of an environment where it's just you kind of marinate in it your whole life. Yes. I mean, I, I can say something similar. There are some people who have dramatic testimonies. They can tell you the moment. They can tell you exactly where they were. Not everybody can do that. Yeah. Um, but it's what a blessing to have to be surrounded by that. So you're, um, you know, you, you mentioned in your book, you're a very mild-mannered man. You seem extremely measured and calm. But you said football was like <laughs> was super liberating for you. Yes, it and is. You, and I, yes. you still enjoy it probably, but you were a, you were a high school player. Yeah. Well, what do you think was the, – what's that all about you, that you yeah. were so aggressive on the gridiron yeah. but yet mild-mannered in yeah. the classroom? Yeah, great question. You know, I, I reflect on that a lot 
because when you grow up as a refugee in this country, you never feel that you belong. And in the back of the minds of every refugee is the fear that if you did something wrong, something catastrophic could happen, mm. because it did happen. So it's literally PTSD at every level. And I remember too, my parents would tell us, "Do not, do not um, break the rules at school. Do not get in a fight at school, because they're afraid that if you get in trouble, you get kicked out of school, you get kicked out of the country." We didn't know that. We, we, we didn't understand the idea that we are legally in the U.S., that people don't kick us out for those kinds of things. But it just permeates through us, this, this underlying fear. And so I was very shy. Uh, and, you know, when you don't speak English as well, it makes you extra shy. Uh, and so I remember I struggled with, with English for a long time. And I, I remember like taking my, one of those standardized tests when I was seventh or eighth grade. I was probably in the 25th percentile or something. Uh, and so I was always afraid uh, they're wonderful people, but then they're also bullies. And, and, and you're taught when you're scared and when your parents say, walk away, you walk away. And as a young man, it was, it, was, uh, it was horrible to the psyche because there's an injustice that is being played out against you and, and you just have to walk away. And so you walk away, you walk away. And you go to church and you're taught to turn the other cheek, turn the other cheek. Was that difficult for you? It was extremely difficult. Uh, and I'm so glad I did because I have friends who did not and they fought back. And some of them ended up in a path that I could have easily been on. Mm. Uh, a very different path, let me put it that way. But it was on f- at f- when, when I was on the football field, I had permission to hit back. Mm. And that was liberating. And you hit back in a way that was fair with rules, with regulation, is a nice clean hit. And, and it was at that point when, I, when, when it occurred to me that I no longer have to be a victim of my environment. Because on the football field, it didn't matter what skin color you have. It didn't matter what zip code you come from. It didn't matter that you're poor. What really mattered was how hard you played, and you played with your heart. Mm. And then they're big guys, they're fast guys, they're small guys, but... but it's the intensity that you can control. And so I think that, that was where my identity began to take shape mm. and I learned that I could control my environment. And once you hit back hard on the football field and people stop bullying you, uh, and when you hit back hard and you do a good job, you're rewarded for it. Yeah. And when you practice and when you, when you uh, work out harder in the gym, when you run more laps, you become better. And so it's a very, uh, it was a self-perpetuating cycle of having agency hmm. uh, or control of my own life, and then also the idea that I can shape my environment and not just be a victim uh, of, of of the identity that I was born into. Yeah, that is a good word. And, um, you know, I, sports have played a key role in so many successful people's lives. And I think for many of those same reasons, the discipline, the self-discipline, the opportunity to have some independence, and sometimes to perhaps express some well-channeled frustration in a, in a constructive way, right? Yes, it's, it's constructive, yeah. That is that is well said. We've had a few pr- guests on our program, sports-related. Uh, Lou Holtz uh, oh, uh-huh. was joined yes. us earlier this summer. Great guy. He actually taught at Arkansas, uh, mm-hmm. coached yes. at Arkansas yes. for a season. Uh-huh. And um, just last week, we were talking with Dick Schultz, who is mm. former head of the U.S. Olympic Committee yeah. and um, a, a basketball coach and baseball mm-hmm. coach and and, you know, it, 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 it's the same mindset right now 
as I approach the problem of poverty in this world is that I we see the poverty that's out there, and I feel horrible about it. It breaks my heart, but I want to do something about it. And so that's why we've done everything that we have. Uh, this is why we integrate into our medical practice, uh, all the different projects that we partner with World Vision to do. Uh, we we give generously of our profits. Uh, we created a a, uh, a skincare shop where we give all the profits away to vulnerable women and children around the world. Mm. We have uh, brought clean water to villages in Rwanda. Uh, and now we're launching a new project with World Vision in Honduras. We're going to bring clean water to to the, this community that never had it before uh, because we recognize the injustice that is taking place. And we refuse to walk away. We refuse to ignore it. And so instead we step into it mm. and we do something proactive with it without being overwhelmed by the, the fear that we can't fix the entire problem. But this village we can fix. And so this past summer we just celebrated by completion of uh, these areas in World Vision where we have partnered with and brought clean water to thousands of people. Wow, that is great. That's the vision of Dr. Vin Chung. Uh, he's the co-founder of Vanguard Skin Specialists. Um, you know, your, your copay isn't just going to the bottom line of a medical practice. It's going to greater things. And the skincare line you talked about, that what's the name of the line? So it's called Clara, and it's named after our daughter. Ah. Yes, Clara means light. We, we open up uh, Clara Aesthetics uh, right after our trip from Cambodia. It was a trip where we went to visit the project that we were partnering with World Vision, rescuing children who had been sex trafficked. And I was humbled. I was broken. And when we came back, we, we decided to do something about it. I recognize that this problem is gigantic. We need to do something about it. We cannot ignore it. Yeah. And so that's when we open up Clara Aesthetics. And uh, it's a place where we, uh, we, uh, we take care of, of people uh, we uh, sell products that, that help people to care for their skin, and we give 100% of, it, of the profits away. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, boy, so many directions we can go in here. You, you, the, the phrase, the immigrant edge, has sort of been all over now. And um, anybody who has the eyes to see and ears to hear recognizes that there are a lot of immigrants who have done amazing things. What is the distinction there? I mean, obviously, mm. driven uh, someone who knows poverty, but your story is not unique. It is unique, but at the same time, you're in a family of successful people. What what causes that immigrant edge to yeah. emerge? The immigrant edge is living life without a safety net. And when I think about my career, I think about my life as I and I describe it in, in the book is that walking a path that is two inches wide hmm. and eighteen years long. Uh, and then after that, you know, it, it, then I was okay. And the, those the two-inch-wide path, you know, you've, it's referred to in the Bible as well, the path that is straight and narrow. It is more difficult. And so in many ways, we, we recognize that there is no safety net. There is danger outside of this, this, you know, this, this narrow path that we, we want to live. And if we're wise, then we would, uh, we would avoid, um, you know, we, we would avoid foolish decisions. Uh, and, uh, and and destructive decisions or destructive activities, and so I think the immigrant edge is, for, at least for me, it comes from the fact that when we, when I was growing up, I knew that I need to get a, I need to do well in school, 
Because if not, I'm going to end up working in a factory like my father. Hmm. Uh, and, and I knew that I had to do well in school because my parents didn't have money to send us to college. So we had to, we had to earn scholarships. Yeah. You're, now let's go through your family because all those kids, all the degrees amongst you, uh, obviously not, you don't have to name everyone, but mm-hmm. what's the, what are the, what, give me a summary of how, <laughs> how successful your yes. family has been. It's incredible. Yeah, so we, we've been very blessed. So, uh, my parents have 11 children. All 11 of us have graduated from college, and we have 22 university degrees. And so we have six doctorates. So I have a doctorate, and my five younger brothers are doctors as well. Uh, and then uh, we also have, I think among us, maybe six or seven master's degree as well. So we've done very well in education. We knew that that is yeah. it. Yeah. And, you know, and, and going back to, you know, and, and today we are proud Americans that serve American communities across the country. We are Doctors, dentists, optometrists, teachers. We work in IT. We work in hospitals. Uh, we're proud Americans. Uh, and and when you, and, and going back to the idea of the immigrant edge, you know, in, in many ways, it is no different from the athlete's edge. If you want to become an Olympic gold medalist, you're doing the same thing. You're waking up early. You're taking care of your body. You don't do foolish things. You do wise things. You take coaching. You take feedback. And you work and you practice with an intensity as if everything matters. Mm. It's no different. Immigrants get it because we have to do that to survive. And in America, you will see it in, in incredible athletes. It's really no different. Yeah. It's almost yeah the narrow path. In some ways, uh, you know, we uh, Americans want the wider path. That's right. And that's not always the best thing for you, right? Yeah. It, yeah so, so th- and, and that's the problem is that we have the option to have the wider path. And, 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 and because we are a, a nation of wealth. And again, I think that to an extreme, uh, you know, I think there's time to rest and there's time to play. Yeah. Uh, but I think that for me, just having gone through the life experience and then having played football as well, uh, I've, I've exercised, uh, the, you know, the idea of what it means to, uh, to, to narrate your own life and to determine your own future. Wow. I've not heard it described that way regarding the path and the, the narrow path. I think that's fantastic. I think, and so much wisdom here to cull from. And um, at the beginning of the program, we talked about your, your wonderful wife, Liesl. Uh, you know, you met her at, um, uh, where again? I, I met her at a high school camp, summer camp. Both had the same last name. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, so Liesl is a gift from God. Um, her last name is also Chung, uh, but she's from, She's from uh, Korea. She was born in South Korea. Came over when she was a year old, and her family story is is you know is uh, detailed in in the Academy Award winning movie Minari. Uh, so you can learn about her story there. But she grew up in rural Arkansas, and uh, and we met at a summer camp, and uh, we've been married now. We just celebrate our twenty fifth year of, uh, of wow. marriage. Congratulations! Thank you. That's great. So you, she goes off to Yale. You go off to Harvard. You eventually get married, and then you decide to move to Colorado Springs. That was sort of a, a decision based on what? <laughs> based on, you know, based upon um, uh, we just wanted to try something new. Uh, you know, so we, we graduated college. I didn't have a job. I had not gone to medical school yet. We decided to go overseas and study theology. So we both studied overseas uh, at the University of Edinburgh for our first year of marriage. And then after that, I had medical school. She had work. I had 
you know, then she went to business school, we had residency. So we just kind of juggled both of our careers. We had two children. And then finally, I was at the last year of my training with, the, oh, my goodness, I can finally be set free and get a real job now. Yeah. And I don't have to chase another training or another school. We could just go wherever we want. And so we literally opened up the map, did a systematic search of all the places in, in the country, and we visited different cities, and we drove into Colorado Springs, and we thought, this is it. This is where we would lay down roots forever and ever. She's an immigrant. I was a refugee, so we had no roots. Hmm. We studied all over the place. We traveled all over the place. We had no real roots until finally we came to Colorado Springs, and we thought, this is it. And so this was where we raised our four children, and we're so grateful to be here. Wow. Well, we're glad you're here. Um, Dr. Vin Chung, co-founder of Vanguard Skin Specialists, author of Where the Wind Leads. In our remaining minute, give me your best. Uh, how often should we go to a dermatologist. I mean, like, I mean, we live in, I'm in Colorado. Not everybody listening is in Colorado where the high altitude sun and all, but as a general generality, give me your best advice in terms of uh, skincare. Sure. So skin cancer could be scary. Any kind of cancer could be scary, but the great thing about skin cancer is that it is curable. If you catch it early, it's also visible. So it could be detected early. And so get a baseline skin check. That's wise for everybody. And then after that, depending on your age, depending on your history, you might want to be seen once a year or maybe twice a year. And then for some conditions, for some patients, I see them even more frequently than that. But at the very least, get a baseline examination. Yeah, I think we're going to get to be good friends here because <laughs> after I've told every six months, once you've had a had some cancer, so that'll be good. I'll get to see you more often. I'm grateful for that. Yes, uh, it'll be a pleasure to see you again. <laughs> well, this has been... Uh, I'm Paul Batura. This has been What a Life, Lessons from Legends. We've had the joy of talking with Dr. Vin Chung uh, this week. Thanks for listening. And um, please tell your friends about our show. Uh, Join us next week, same time, same channel, and we'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to What a Life with Paul Batura. Let him know what you're thinking. Follow Paul on Twitter at Paul Batura, or you can reach out to him on email at paul at paulbatura.com. Most importantly, live a life that emulates the admonition of the Apostle Paul, whose teachings are the inspiration for this show. Writing to believers at Philippi, Paul urged them, Brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. We'll see you next time on What a Life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.